I wanted to make an interactive version of it, kind of calling back to the origins of the song, which was such a community-driven. Like the only reason that that song blew up was because people connected with it and started recording their own versions of it. And then all the labels started paying attention. And that's when I got signed. And and it was because they were like, they didn't even know what to do with me, to be honest. Major labels, that was not the right move for me looking back on it. But the reason they were interested at all is because suddenly there were, you know, hundreds of people around the world covering this song and then it became thousands. And they're like, why are all these people covering, making their own versions of this song by this unknown artist? And that was really what interested them. You're listening to the Crypto Art Podcast. Conversations on art, crypto, and the search for meaning. I'm your host, Conlon Rios. I think just like, like, oh, let me like say that again and like I'll, okay. I'll figure it out. It's actually really cool because even when I say um, I'm taking out all the ums. So when you talk, nice. you sound really eloquent and like, oh, this person's on. It's like, <laughs> no, it's <laughs> so it's really great. I always wonder about that when I listen to podcasts. I'm like, wow, everybody's so well spoken. How do they how do they sound so good? It's it's smoke and mirrors. Okay, so yeah, hi everyone. This is Conlon, and I'm here today with Tara Naomi Engelbart. She's a singer, songwriter, two decades of experience in the traditional music business, a couple years now in the web three space involved in a ton of projects and she wears a lot of hats. Hey, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> awesome. With all my hats. <laughs> yeah, you got all the hats. <laughs> yeah. So just to kick it off, yeah, I would love to kind of hear about your your background. This is, you know, creative focus. So yeah, what's your background and where are you from and where'd you grow up? Yeah. So I grew up in a small town in upstate New York and went to school in Michigan, moved to Manhattan for a couple of years, came out to LA. It was I've been here for almost 20 years now, which is terrifying. But yeah, I think about 18 years. And a few of those I was in London, but the majority of the last 18 years I've lived here. And I grew up playing music. I started playing piano when I was about four. I started singing when I was a baby, like before I was one, I was singing. <laughs> and it was very okay, 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 wait, wait, hold up there. So you started singing before <laughs> even talking? Like how, how does that work? <laughs> I started talking really early. So I started talking at about eight months and wow. yeah, and a little bit before that, I apparently, I don't remember this at all, but my mom and dad tell me that I started just sort of singing little weird melodies and then um, and then I would pick up on words and it very quickly pivoted to singing words, inappropriate words a lot of the time. Like I would just hear anything and repeat it and <laughs> like in the grocery store, you know, sitting in the cart, singing these weird little songs and, and people would sort of look at my mom, of course, and my mom, I guess it was embarrassing to my mom. But yeah, so I started singing early on and just noticing a pattern because I've definitely written some songs that, well, I've written some songs that are very positive. And then I also went through a stage of writing songs to sort of sort of cathartic songs um, whenever something bad happened and definitely had a couple couple times when, uh, when the people in those songs, like I wrote some songs about some people that I wish I hadn't written. Let's just put it that way <laughs> and then shared them with them. <laughs> yeah. Get through some <laughs> Some tough times. Yeah. Singing inappropriate songs from the day I was born. Yeah. Then playing piano from about age four and French horn 
starting at age eight, and then I went to school for opera, and then I started writing my own songs right after college. Wow. Okay. So for the piano four, how did that come about? Where was your first piano, and, and who really just introduced it to you? Like who put you in front of a piano? Yeah, there was a piano at my grandparents' house, and there was one in in our house as well. My mom had played growing up, and I remember sitting at the piano with my grandpa, just playing these little melodies. He didn't have any formal training, but he liked to sit there and make up little songs. So I remember my earliest memory of writing a song. I actually think it was with my uncle Eli. He asked me to write a song. I must have been three. He asked me to write a song about the Oval Office. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like questioning that now in my head. But I remember writing a song called Oval Office, and it just kind of went around and around in this circular oval pattern on the black keys and the white keys. Yeah, that was like, that was the first, I think the first song I wrote. Yeah, that was some weird, strange requests from older relatives to write bizarre songs. It must have been a political time or it was clearly on his mind. (laughs) Yeah, he was, he's pretty smart, so... (laughs) How about the French horn? It's a little more advanced. French horn was like a disaster. I mean, it was, for, for anyone that doesn't know, the French horn is a beautiful instrument, but it's one of the hardest instruments to play. And not only just simply getting a sound out of it that isn't excruciating for the listener is kind of a, a minor miracle. So I was sort of coaxed into it because I had musical ability and it was very clear to teachers and they needed someone for our high school, sorry, not our high school, our elementary school orchestra and band. They needed someone to play the French horn. So they got me to do it. Like all the cool kids, like the popular kids played flute and clarinet. They were, you know, that was like, those were like the cool instruments and saxophone. Big nerds like me got stuck with the brass instruments and not trumpet, but like French horn, baritone, tuba trombone, you know, it was like these <laughs> instruments that, that that none of the other kids wanted to play. And so they said, oh, well, very few people can actually play the French horn. And so I was like, okay, sold. Because I was very, very sort of driven and competitive from the time I was a child, which I don't say with pride, but that's just the way it is and has been. So I, yeah, I always sort of had something to prove to myself and other people for better or worse. But I, uh, so yeah, I got kind of tricked into playing French horn by my own competitive nature, hearing that I was one of the few people, if not the only person in my class that would be able to actually do it. But it also meant that I had to carry this thing. It was this, it was this very, they're big, they're big, but they're not big enough that you got to leave one at school and have one at home. So yeah, like in my school music program, if your instrument was little, you got one and you got to carry it back and forth. Cause like nobody could afford to buy these things in our school back, you know, in that day we still had funding for school music programs. And so they had instruments that we could play. They were pretty gnarly, but they worked. Yeah. So like if you were, if you had a flute, you got one and you brought it back and forth and whatever. If you had, if you were assigned a tuba, for example, you got two. One tuba lived at school and one tuba lived at home. So you could, (laughs) presumably, so you could practice, although it doesn't, it didn't seem like many of them did practice. But if you were a mid-sized instrument, like a French horn, I kind of fell into the, like right into this crack of like, it was definitely too big for a tiny eight-year-old person (laughs) to be carrying back and forth, but it wasn't too big. It was like small enough. So yeah, so I would have to carry this thing. And also then it was very awkward. The shape of it is very awkward. It's like this big bell. Yeah. Like if anybody's listening, Google French horn case and see this thing and then picture walking down elementary school school bus aisle and just hitting everybody's knees as you walk to find your seat. And I was already very nerdy and awkward and not popular. And so like 
carrying this French horn back and forth, hitting everyone in the kneecaps was like not, it didn't help the cause, <laughs> but that was, so that, and then just not, that doesn't even begin to describe like the sound. The first, I think, year of playing, I was assigned the parts that we were assigned because they knew that we wouldn't be able to really play anything on this instrument. And so it was just these giant like, like for like five measures, which the like entire part. And I remember this one called Camel Train. That's the song I remember playing. And it was just like whole notes, which if anyone knows, it was just in one note held out for like 30 seconds. And then like another note, I mean, with breaths in between, but it was just, it was very boring. And I feel bad for my family for all those years of what they had to listen oh, to. Because they had to listen, with, listen to you practice yes. in the room. Oh, in the living room. Yes. <laughs> That's hilarious because <laughs> um, I was one of the flute kids. So I played oh, flute. Oh, yeah. you were a flute kid. Yeah. So I, 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 everything you're saying, like, yeah, I had a small little flute in a black plastic case. You take it yep. home. Really simple. And like, you can sound kind of good after a few months. <laughs> and the French horn kids were kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, yes. I'm not going to. I mean, of course we were. Look at what we had yeah. to endure. So, uh, okay, but it makes so much more sense now. Um, wow. That gives me a new context to you as well. And it, you're right. It's not big, but for an eight-year-old kid, that's it, it is pretty bulky. It, it is yes. a big thing. Wow. And I was little too. I was like not, I'm like 5'4 now. And I was not one of the <laughs> tall, big kids. You know, I'm, I was always kind of on the small side. So carrying this thing around was, and I was also, I was an artist. So it wasn't like I was, you know, athletic and strong. I was very... An indoor cat. Okay. <laughs> okay. So that, that was a good experiment. And then he said opera. How about, how about that? Yeah. I mean, that was another art form. Like that was another thing that I got into because I could. I went to camp for um, piano and musical theater. I was really into musical theater. And my teachers discovered that I had the ability to sing classical music, to sing classical, you know, classical voice in that way, in that, in that style. And they were like, oh boy, this is going to be fun. And they started, so I started training and I didn't grow up listening to this. My parents weren't into opera. They weren't into like, my dad was into sort of old country music and blues and like Dwayne Allman and Johnny Cash. And, and then he went through a stage where he was really into classical symphonic music. So he did listen to some of that, but for the most part, it wasn't, you know, we never listened to opera, but because I could do it, I got it in my head that that's what I wanted to do. And that's kind of been a theme like for me. I've had I've really struggled in my whole life with being able to differentiate between what I want to do and what I'm doing simply because I can and it gets me the desired result of applause and accolades and things. It's really hard I think in this world, in our world to know who you are and what you want to do and what and to separate your passion from just the desire to achieve and be rewarded. It's, it's been a struggle for me my whole life. So yeah, so I went to university for opera <laughs> and, and I didn't fit in. I, at this point I was sort of, um, I was sort of goth punk vibe <laughs> and I showed up and, you know, immediate outcast. It was almost, when I look back on it, it's like, you didn't even try to fit in anywhere. You know, I wanted to, at this point, I think growing up not fitting in, I just sort of embraced that completely and like ran straight into it and was like, well, you're not going to accept me anyway. So I'm just going to completely be, be outside of anything that you would ever approve of. Um, but I still want to get all the solos. I still want to excel, you know, so I would <laughs> audition and get, you know, get these parts and things as an undergrad. And, um, 
yeah, it was weird. It was a weird time, but I did. I went to school for opera and uh, at the same time, all my friends were just sort of people that lived in, in the town and were in bands and didn't go to college. And so that was, I had kind of a double life my whole college time where I would show up when I had to and um, at school, but my extracurricular activities were completely elsewhere. <laughs> so. Wow. No, okay, so I love it. I, um, music has always been a theme. It's been a thread throughout your entire life. Yeah. Okay, so wow, this makes a lot lot more sense for me too. Like, okay, <laughs> like the weirdness, the opera, it's, it all makes sense. Um, so how did you first encounter crypto and NFTs then? So I first encountered crypto really early in maybe, I don't know, when, what was it, 2010 or but it was nothing that I understood. My brother had friends who were into it. They were talking about it. I was like, well, that sounds like finance. And I don't do finance because I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. like I think in my in my life and my career, it's like, and I think actually for most artists, we've really, there's a cultural expectation that we don't care about money and that we shouldn't. And it's led to a lot of disempowering beliefs for artists and a lot of struggle and it's just, it's not, it's totally false, which is something that I love, which we'll probably get into, but something I love about this space is that it empowers us again to take control of our finances and understand them because living in the world we live in, unless we're going to go live in a cave somewhere or on a commune where we never again have to worry about money, it's like currency, funds, money, finances, these are all part of living as a human in this world. And why should we not care about it? And how does it why is it assumed or why is this belief instilled in us that artists should be above that somehow or, you know, hand it off to other people to manage for us, which is why so many of us end up getting ripped off by people we entrust to help guide us, you know, because we don't want to know and we don't want to, you know, dirty the well or whatever with this disgusting money business. But like, I actually, so, so a lot of my life I live that way and I, and I paid the price for that quite literally, you know, um, had business managers that ripped me off. It was crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sold to the creators that way because it's like, Oh, let us worry about the, the, the dirty money part. You just focus on the art mm -hmm. and in doing so it's like, Oh, well then I, also I'm going to manage 90% of <laughs> the dirty money part. <laughs> yeah. You don't want that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I, yeah. So I didn't pay attention at the time because Honestly, I just didn't want anything to do with money. And then again, it, I became aware of it in maybe 2014 when the company my brother was running, they started making, it was a film, film production company, but they started making investments in tech companies. And they also started investing in cryptocurrencies and bought a bunch of Bitcoin. And, and so again, I heard about it. And at that point, I can't remember. I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but I think Bitcoin was, was it like at a hundred then in 2014? I can pull it up right now. It was. Yeah. Let's find out. But all right. So in 2014, oh, the charts are going to go back. It was like sub 500. It was like 300, 200. Okay. Yeah. So in 2014, we're talking, yeah, a couple hundred dollars for a Bitcoin. And, and at the time I remember thinking, oh, I should, I should get into this, but I, to be honest, I was really struggling at that point. I had left my record label. I was in debt. I was because I'd had a, made a bunch of bad decisions because didn't want to know anything about finance and, you know, ended up getting ripped off. And so it was like all this stuff. There were all these reasons, you know, I was living month to month. I didn't know how to support myself. And I was like, I cannot put 
even a couple hundred dollars to speculate magic on this thing. Internet money. Yeah, this magic <laughs> internet money. Yeah. I was like, okay, well, that's for people who have a lot of money to speculate on. And I don't, I don't want to mix with this. And so then I, you know, then again, um, in living in Venice and going to these different parties, I, you know, I remember I remember Crystal Pierce telling me about uh Ethereum and all the potential uses for, you know, smart contracts with music. Cause she's like, look, you're a musician. You've got to get in. And this was probably 2015. She's like, this is going to be a thing and you you need to learn about this. And, and there's a use case for this with music and art and the block. And I just was like, this is finance again. I can't, I'm an artist. Do you guys want me to play a song for you? You know, like that was, I just couldn't break out of, you know, I would go to parties at, Brock Pierce's and Crystal, you know, Brock and Crystal's house in Venice and surrounded by people who were early, early, you know, creating the space. And it was wild. And I, and I just couldn't tap in inside myself. So then in like 2016, I was finally like, you know what, this is ridiculous. You should check out EOS. (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) I remember that. So I remember like teaching myself how to buy EOS and like I set up a MetaMask and um, and I bought a bunch of EOS and, and then I just, and then I started buying some other stuff, some ETH and some bit, little bit of Bitcoin, you know, just a, a little bit. And, and then I, you know, put money I shouldn't have spent into it, watched it go way, way up in 2017 watched it crash in 2018 and then just kind of didn't pay attention again until mid 2020. And at that point, I remember my brother again said, Hey, you know, things are happening with art on the blockchain you really should check it out. You were first in, you know, I, I had a, a history. I was the first uh, first musician on YouTube to sort of blow up. Like I was the most subscribed music account, music channel on YouTube for a while until the major labels came in and, and started, you know, quickly, quickly surpassed my, my subscriber base. But yeah, but, um, but I was early on that. He's like, you know, you've really you've taken all these risks with, with different ways of doing things. And, um, and you could, you're exactly the kind of creative that could really do well in this space because it does require someone who's willing to try something different. It requires someone who has the aptitude to, you know, understand certain technical things. He's like, you, you could really, you're like an ideal artist for this. You should check it out. So I thought, okay, fine. You know, and uh, I had been, it was the middle, it was middle of 2020. I was streaming on Twitch every day and just kind of trying to get my music out there without touring. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And, um, (laughs) you know, it was tough. And so I started, uh, started looking around and started looking at art blocks. And at the time I was like, I cannot spend even a couple hundred dollars on, on, I've, I've never spent a couple hundred dollars on art. I, I can't afford to do that. I'm streaming every day for hours a day, just trying to pay my rent, you know? So I became aware of it. And then I was like, but you know what? I'm not going to buy anything, but I can start thinking about what I could make. And so the first thing I made was um, a an audiovisual collaboration with an artist, a digital artist in Sweden named Linus Dahlgren and my friend Andrew Dost from the band Fun. And we wrote this really campy, fun song about currency and Linus animated it and it was super cool and that was in I think uh, was it February I I'm really bad at dates it was maybe February or March I think February that we released it 
And um, that was the first thing I made. And I also wanted to... I also wanted to take my song, Say It's Possible, which had been the first song that blew up of mine on YouTube and really kind of changed the trajectory of my life as as an artist, as a songwriter. I wanted to make an interactive version of it, kind of calling back to the origins of the song, which was such a community-driven... Like, the only reason that that song blew up was because people connected with it and started recording their own versions of it. And then all the labels started paying attention. And that's when I got signed. And And it was because they were like, they didn't even know what to do with me, to be honest. The major labels, that was not the right move for me looking back on it. But the reason they were interested at all is because suddenly there were, you know, hundreds of people around the world covering this song. And then it became thousands. And they're like, why are all these people covering, making their own versions of this song by this unknown artist? And that was really what interested them. So I was like, well, I want to make a community interactive version of this song and I can do that. I see, I think I can do that with this technology. And that was what led me to finding you guys at AC. Yeah. Remember that. (laughs) Yeah. Because I was like, how do I make, you know, how do I make a project where you can change the mix? And I remember I reached out to you and Lisa and, um, and I think you guys were like, well, it's not exactly what we do, but we have another thing that you can do. And um, and then that's when we ended up making Say It's Possible. And that was actually really funny because Universal owned my copyrights, uh, controlled my copyrights. And I had lost track of time. I mean, after I left my label and everything, like I wasn't even working with the same management or business manager or, or attorneys anymore. And so I wrote this email. I spent all this time composing this email and I was like, to whom it may concern, you know, <laughs> dear Universal Music Publishing Group, I would like to inquire about, and I imagined I was going to have to like mount this whole fight, yeah, this big fight to get my, you know, buy back the rights to my songs. And, and, and I, and I sent this email, it was very formal, you know, I was, I don't have an attorney on retainer at this point. I haven't needed one, you know, I hire someone as is as needed. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to even, I'm not going to hire an attorney to do this. I can do this. And, you know, dear sirs. And, uh, and so (laughs) I sent this email that was just like, you know, so formal. And I get this email back from someone in like, I don't know, probably an administrative assistant or something. And they're like, dear Ms. Naomi, you're, you're, I, and I can't remember, but it was basically, it was like, your copyrights all revert back to you this year. So there's nothing, there's nothing you have to do. Have a nice day. Wow. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, this is perfect. Like I had seriously lined up this whole thing. I was like, I'm going to have to crowdfund to get the money to buy back my, Uh my, my, my publishing. And then I'll be able to release this blockchain project, you know? And it was just like, yeah, you're all set. There's nothing you have to do. (laughs) Have at it. They're yours. Like I wanted to fight. (laughs) (laughs) I know it was so funny. So, Yeah, so I got the rights back to say it's possible, and then we released it on async, and that was that. Was, and that's actually, you know, how I got more into NFTs was through because I I didn't have the funds to like speculate on JPEGs at that point. That which is what I was, you know, I'm like I I think this is the future, and I want to buy this stuff, but I but I can't, I just can't justify it. And so once I started earning money on my own art, I started turning that back around and buying. And, you know, buying art blocks and then um, a bunch of other NFTs. And I just haven't stopped. Yeah. It's been so exciting and fun. I, I remember some of our conversations, like group chats were like, you know, you 
getting into different art block projects and um, just discovering some of them through you. So I remember like the geometry one of like them animating and following. Geometry runners. Okay, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah I, I was, yeah, that, that was cool. <laughs> that is, I think, one of the coolest art blocks projects. I will, I will stand by that statement that, that geometry runners is one of the coolest art blocks projects that I've ever seen. It was so fun. And, but it was also my biggest, it was like my, my biggest, uh, misstep. Mm. Uh, I got, I kind of, I missed the mint. Oh. I wasn't able to mint because at that time it was gas prices were yeah, crazy. Yeah. And you had to like, you had to like load up with like thousands of dollars just for the gas fees to be able to get one of these. So I missed that. And then I went over to the secondaries on OpenSea and I was watching it go like six, seven, eight, nine. And I'm like, I got to get one of these. I got to get one. And it was real. <laughs> oh man. But I really, you know, I'd been watching the project for months. I was like, this is so fun. I love it. It just, the whole aesthetic of it appealed to me so much. And I ended up buying one for 15 ETH. Yeah. ETH was at like three. It was like my biggest purchase ever. And it was, it was, yeah, it was one of those things where I got in at the top and then I just watched it fall and I watched all these other ones come up and I'm like, oh, I could have got that one. I could have got that one yeah. for, oh, oh, for four, man. oh, for two, oh, oh, for three. Yeah. And it was, it was sort of a, one of that, that big lesson of like, it's going to go up and then it's going to go down. So if you miss something and you really still want it, there's a good chance. I mean, there, there are a few that, that, that haven't really, but I mean, but even like Fidenza's, you know, at one point they were, they dropped down, I mean, to the low, low price of what, like 70 ETH? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, that's funny. It's like in my crypto journey, I've always ha had that experience where at any given moment, there's always one more chance to get it at a lower price mm. if you're patient. Mm -hmm. And half the time you, you you talk yourself out of it and you jump in or half the time you wait and sure enough, it comes back. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good lesson. It was my first lesson in tax loss harvesting as well. I mean, I tax loss harvested it and then I just bought another one at the floor, which was at like one. But I honestly don't understand. That's the, the one thing I, you know, there's a lot going on in the space that I just don't get. And a lot of stuff, I know a lot of, there's so many factors, but it's like kind of like art and music in general. A lot of times what you think is so amazing doesn't end up being the thing that people are putting the, the, the highest value on, you know, because that project I think is so cool. And I'll probably go buy a couple more now <laughs> because I just think they're they're so beautiful, like not beautiful in the sense of that, but they're mesmerizing. Yeah, it's just so creative, you know. No, you're right. It's like um, these projects are like perceived by people differently, but also time, right? Like they might have been really hot for one moment, but then people's attention move on to the next thing, and and so it's impossible time. And plus, there's other factors, you know. There's always altruistic factors, and then there's people who are very. Um, Kind of behind the scenes doing different things so i mean with, that's true with all markets right the stock market especially right like you have companies that are doing amazing and the market analysts and traders have a different opinion and they push it down yeah it's stuff it's a very inside all of this stuff is very inside what is it inside baseball i don't really like i'm not a sports person so you don't really know what's going on at any given time and it's very hard to uh hard to, you know, although even I have to say, even when I look at traders and stuff, because I've been really wanting to understand more about the finance aspect. And it's like, well, I want to get smart about currency. And I want to, you know, I'm just interested by it. I'm interested in it because it's never made sense to me. And I like things that come easy to me, I tend to get very bored of and things that are a challenge. I 
like to dive in and see if I can, you know, eventually master them. And I think for me, the thing that's held me back the most with like trading and, and that route is just being afraid of losing. And when I look at even the best and biggest traders, like if you look at stocks and like people lose all the time and it's like the ones who really succeed aren't afraid of losing huge amounts of money. And it's like they lose almost more often than they, than they win. But then when they win, they win really big. So I think it's, they also have a lot of money to lose. So let's not forget. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes, that is a good point. But you're right. Like a, a lot of the people who made money in the space early on were the ones who had money to play with. The rest of us just had to pay bills. And yeah, it's fascinating. I, I love hearing that journey. Switch gears a little bit. You got in the space, got a product, started collaborating. Would like to talk a little bit about what you've been working on this past year. Uh, I know you, you've been involved with XPRIZE. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I helped, I helped launch Warps by Warp Sound, um, AI generated and composed music, really exciting NFT project, early, early music NFT project. And that kind of led me into a space where I was like, okay, I do want to do my own music and my own art, but I am also enjoying the business side of things. And um, then I was asked to help XPRIZE get into get into web three as it was put to me. And I was like, all right, well, let's, let's explore this. You know, it, it, it's sort of a full circle thing for me because like when I wrote say it's possible, that was in response to Al Gore's film An inconvenient truth. And nothing has ever inspired me as much as the idea of using music to inspire and ignite sort of change. And I've written a lot of songs throughout my life as a songwriter that would be considered protest songs or, you know, like say it's possible. A lot of people thought it was about a relationship, but it was a direct response to climate change. When people found that out, I got, I definitely got some, you know, people have d different opinions about yeah. artists who write about anything that's political or whatever, but <laughs> I've always been, it's, it's, I've always been most inspired when I'm writing about something that's bigger than me and my little life, you know, and that might maybe has greater impact. And so when I started thinking about, about XPRIZE and for anyone who doesn't know, XPRIZE is a nonprofit that focuses on solving the biggest problems in the world through competition and through funding these, these wild competitions where people, where teams of people try to solve something that has been unsolvable up to the, up to this point. And it's really massive work because there, there's the, the team that eventually solves it. If there ends up being a winner for the prize, they obviously have done, you know, they, they've created some technology, some technological solution that is, that is able to solve the problem, but then there's all the other teams that are also focusing their efforts on it too. So you end up with, all, with like all these teams of incredibly smart, capable people working to solve these problems. And, you know, it has a much greater impact than just the folks who go on to win it. It's like you all of a sudden have all these other solutions coming out too. And for any market, there needs to be multiple, multiple teams working to solve it, you know? The real prize is the, the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Or, or, the, or the real prize is saving the world, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's like incentivizing these people to put their efforts into, into stuff that can actually make life on the planet better for 
everyone for all of the planet's inhabitants. It's like, all right, let's go. Like that, I, if I was really interested in in exploring how we can use the tools of Web three to help X Prize accomplish its mission as an organization and to build a community around XPRIZE. And that's really where we're we're focusing right now because XPRIZE, with all the work that they've been doing for the last 28 years, should be a household name. Everyone should know what XPRIZE is doing. But very few people do because the access to XPRIZE has pretty much been limited to people who can either fund a multi-million dollar prize or who can, you know, be part of be a benefactor where you're donating hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars personally. And so very, very few people can do that. And the founder of XPRIZE, Peter Diamandis, really wanted, you know, his vision is to open it up to millions of people around the world, not just to those who can afford to, you know, fund a prize or be a major benefactor. So that's what I'm looking at right now and working on and trying to help figure out because, to me, the most exciting thing about Web3 and the space that we're heading into is the potential for community building on a massive scale where it's mutually beneficial and people are actually able to work together versus being audiences that are marketed to. You know, to me, that's like the biggest difference between the Web2 space that we're coming from and the Web3 space that we're moving into. Oh, so, okay, so I, just uh, processing this in my head, I, I love that because what the Web3 community is so powerful in so many ways. It, it moves, it, it, it doesn't sleep. You know, people are always like, Web3 moves, it's 24 seven. So like, it's just, it's always active. Everyone can be involved at all levels, right? There's levels for people at the very high level with a lot of capital and you can get started as, you know, as low as, you know, one or $2 worth of, um, of capital on different chains. Um, you can just get started. And it really encourages people to, you know, contribute in any way they can. If you can write, if you can promote, if you can build, if you can test, if you can draw, if you can do music, like there's, there's, there's room for you to contribute. And so it sounds like XPRIZE is just trying to activate that community for real causes um, outside of, of some of the, the things we're doing, we're doing now. Yeah. I mean, if you look at many of us who started early in the space, the things that got us into it weren't thinking about flipping, you know, flipping NFTs. And it was like the actual world shifting potential of the technology. And so even though the money, the quick money in the space has brought a lot of speculators and people who are just purely motivated by greed, there's a ton of that. It's attractive to people who are just motivated by greed. But for every one of those people, I believe there are an equal or greater number of people that really have the desire to see things change and to be part of the change in the world and to help create a world moving forward that isn't what we were given or handed, you know, what was handed to us, but make it better than that for everybody now and in the future. And I think that it's easy to get caught up. You know, we're spending all of our time in this, those of us who are really deeply immersed in this space. I know personally, I end up getting caught up in a lot of stuff that isn't nourishing me as a person, you know, it's really easy to get caught up in like, you know, oh, what's the floor of that? And is that going to, you know, and I catch myself sometimes and I'm like, whoa, that's not how I want to live my life, you know? And if I were given something else, and it's also, I get caught up in the negative headlines because everything there's, it's so much, you know, we're, we're dealing with this attention, attention economy or whatever. It's like, it makes me sick a little bit, like to think about 
everyone is trying to just engage us and to get us to keep us distracted and focused on them, whether it's companies or, or influencers or, you know, it's, it's very, that is very upsetting to me. And the way that they keep us engaged is by scaring us a lot of the time, putting out this, you know, focusing on the most negative thing. And so if there were a way to still engage and be part of the community, but focus my energy on something really positive and hopeful. And that's, I think, a huge thing of why I'm attracted to XPRIZE is because they really, they're not, you know, covering their ears and saying, you know, everything's fine. They're like, no, we need to find solutions for existential issues, but there's hope. Like they're, they're, they believe it's a very optimistic organization but also, you know, realistic. It's scientists. It's not people that are just kind of going la 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 that, you know, none of this is happening. They're like, yeah, it's all happening. And we believe in the potential for people to come together and solve some of this through ideas that don't exist yet, you know? And the reason that you're scared and the reason that you don't, that you, that you don't have hope is because, yeah, you can't see a solution, but there are people who can, and especially if they're funded to focus on that, to find the solution. So, I think where that plays into this space so beautifully is there's a lot of people like me who would rather be focused on finding the solutions than dwelling on the negative stuff and listening to influencers yell at each other on Twitter spaces. You know, so it's like, let's give people the community that they're seeking. Because I, I find myself, especially now, I go out less, I interact with people less. I'll just start going into discords that I'm part of. And I go in and it's like a bunch of people talking about, you know, okay, boys, here we go. And let's like, you know, someone just swept the floor and I'm just like, I don't want to. LFG. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's exciting when it's, when things are, you know, taking off in that way that, you know, it's very exciting, but it's almost like being in, in, in a casino or something. And it's this energy of like gambling and maybe winning. And like, if I could, I just, I want community that speaks to me about the things that I actually think really matter. And, and I think XPRIZE has the potential to offer that to people in a Web3 community. Like come in and learn about, learn how to be part of a solution to something. Are you scared? Okay, great. Come talk about how we can make it better. You know, it's, it's exciting. And we need artists in these communities. You know, artists have to be part of the solution. And that's what I love about Web3 and NFTs. It's like, bringing cultural, bringing beauty into the, you know, bringing aesthetics and bringing beauty and bringing creative minds into. I just want to say, I think that's, that's so important because we've had a lot of technology solutions to a lot of our problems for like a century. And the reason why they're not able to be used is because it's not the technology that's not, that's not being, uh, that's holding us back. It's the cultural, it's political, mm -hmm. it's society just you know, needing to, to, to switch their attention onto that and really get behind it. And like you said, the art and the music, that's the culture. So that's what will bring people into these, these issues. Totally. That's like, that's the thing because people have to have an experience of something in order to care about it. And, you know, it's like empathy is required for people to care. Like, otherwise it's just this massive issue that doesn't directly affect my life today. And I have more important things to think about. You know, but if you can give people an experience and, and, 
and and make them feel something or allow them, help them to feel something around. So it's like using art and using music and using NFTs and using these tools of Web3 to engage people around issues and help them feel something and help them feel connected to and help them feel like they can be part of the solution. Because that's the other thing. People don't, don't, it's too easy to tune it out if we don't think we can help. If we think that there's a solution and we think we can be part of it, then we care, you know? So you need to say it's possible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. Well, we're coming up to the time here. This has been amazing. I can't believe it. It's been so fun. I, I, I love the XPRIZE stuff. I, I want to hear more about it I, offline too. Like just hearing your story, you know, the tech part, the weirdness, <laughs> like you got to, you got to kind of blend a little bit of this, this artistic weird and tech to be into to blockchain. <laughs> yeah uh nft yeah. right like it's, it's all makes sense um okay so who would you like to see on the podcast like who would you like to see me interview next oh man oh that's a good question and it could be anyone like it, it could be someone big or it could be someone like hey here's someone who needs more of a spotlight oh my god hold on you're gonna have to cut out a lot of dead air here um <laughs> it's okay you know who's great who's great to talk to is genzo and you know him awesome yeah He's and he's he and I are actually working on a massive project for XPRIZE right now. Wow. Okay. And that's all I'm going to say. Okay. But um, but Genzo and I met because of async. And apparently Genzo saw my project homework and that, that I that I created with wine bags and a bunch of other incredible artists. And um, and Genzo started asking wine bags if he could introduce him to me and then I met Genzo but I had heard Genzo in spaces before in music spaces and um, was always really impressed with with whether it was music he was playing or stuff he was talking about so he and I connected because of the homework project and then um, found out that he had had a really similar experience to, to mine to my experience in the music industry where he kind of you know reached some pretty high heights and gotten some gotten pretty far but then there was always something that just was unappealing to him or wasn't it wasn't quite the right fit or you know he had a, well he had a lot of bad experiences in the industry as did I and so initially we we sort of bonded around that but then we were like okay well what's you know where do we go from here like we're both in this very experimental space we both want to find a way to make music that works for us, you know, and that uses all of our skills. Cause he's also a visual artist. He's also, you know, he's super multi-talented and I feel like this space is great for people like that. Yeah. He's, he's interesting, very interesting and smart and fun to talk to. I'm excited. I definitely, I mean, yeah, I've talked to Genzo a couple of times and uh, love everything he's done on async. So definitely yeah. we'll, we'll reach out to him next. And I just love that you guys connected through async. I mean, async oh, yeah. first project was a, a big collaboration and it's always been about, you know, connecting artists together and having them work, do things that they didn't do before with this technology. So. Oh, I love async. And I, I feel like you, you, the team at async is incredible because yeah, you can feel the focus on artists and also it's like equally providing artists. It's just so artist centric. It's like every other platform I feel like is just becomes a business. And I know async is a business as well, but you've never, you've somehow managed to never, lose that initial focus of keep of of creating tools to facilitate art creation for artists you know and and also innovating like you guys are just 
everything you're doing is so innovative all the time. And I, and I love that. I love the risk taking and I love like, that's, that's just, it's exciting. It's exciting to me. So. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you. Okay. And lastly, where can people find uh, your work? Oh yeah. I think I'm, I'm on Twitter more than I am anywhere else these days. And I have a link tree on my Twitter. So yeah, Twitter is just my name, Tara Naomi, T-E-R-R-A-N-A-O-M-I. Yeah. Well, thanks again so much for, for the conversation. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you. Mm-hmm.